Uh, we are continuing in the, uh, the life of Jacob. Uh, this morning we're going to look at the, the last act of a desperate man. Uh, on uh, Saturday, November the 7th, 1981, uh, I found myself between a rock and a hard place. I had two very important competing events that were happening in the same day. It was my first year uh, on the staff of Covenant College as a soccer coach. I was an assistant coach in the varsity team. We had worked hard all the way from mid-August, uh, now all the way into early November, and we were in the playoffs. Uh, we were in a district championship game against Tennessee Wesleyan, which was about an hour and a half uh, away from Chattanooga, Tennessee, just north on Highway 75 towards Knoxville. A very important game against our arch rivals. And so we were really uh, excited to have this opportunity to play in the district championship game. The game started at 1 o'clock, uh, which worked okay on my schedule until that game went into overtime. It ended up tied 1-1. to And we're playing the district championship game. It ended up tied 1-1. to And we played one overtime. That overtime ended up tied. We played another overtime. That overtime ended up tied. Uh, and, and these were in the days where there wasn't a shootout. You just kept playing till somebody won. And it got to be 3 in the afternoon or 3.30 in the afternoon or 4 and 4.30 in the afternoon. The other event I had scheduled for that evening at 7 o'clock was my wedding. <laughs> and so the men in the room can understand why I was between a rock and a hard place. The women in the room are wondering why their pastor is such a knucklehead. But I, you know, we had, we had sweated and toiled with these guys all season long. And now I gotta leave right, right when my guys are in the foxhole and they're fighting for their lives. And, and I gotta, and I gotta leave. Plus, half of my groomsmen are out on the field playing <laughs> soccer. This is a, this is the truth. The trumpet player at my wedding stood behind the organ in the sanctuary because he had his tux on from here up and his soccer shorts and his cleats on from the waist down. <laughs> You ever find yourself between a rock and a hard place where you've got to make a choice and, and either one's going to mean a, a sacrifice of one, one kind or the other? I got to my wedding on time, uh, and it was a, it was a beautiful evening. Uh, but, but when you use that phrase, you know, between a rock and a hard place, there's a person who's in a position to make a choice they really don't want to have to make. And that's where Jacob is this morning. Jacob's between a rock and a hard place. Jacob has left his uncle Laban and he's going back to Canaan. And they didn't leave on great terms. I actually didn't preach on that section of Genesis uh, just because time didn't allow it. But Jacob and Laban have not parted on the nicest of terms. In fact, they set up a pillar. They set up a pile of rocks, an Ebenezer. We talked about what an Ebenezer was a few weeks ago. And, and Jacob said, I'll stay on this side of the rocks. And Laban said, I'll stay on this side of the rocks. And then in essence, what they said to one another is, if you come on this side or you come on this side, that means you're attacking me and, and, and it's going to get violent between the two of us. So Jacob can't go back to Laban. He can't retreat. But he can't go forward either because in front of him is his brother Esau. And if you remember, as we've talked about uh, Jacob and his conniving with his brother, Jacob has put himself in a position where his brother says, I'm living basically for one thing. I'm living for the day when I get to stick a knife in between the ribs of my brother. I'm living for the day when I get to kill him. Jacob had stolen the birthright. He had robbed Esau of the blessing uh, that was due him. Now, in God's providence, the blessing was going to come to Jacob, but God's intention was never that Jacob would lie and cheat and steal. And now Jacob has to deal with Jacob. <laughs> now he has to deal with where his lying and his conniving has gotten him. So on Jacob's 
kind of vision of life. As Jacob looks at where he finds himself on this particular day, he finds himself between a rock and a hard place. But in actuality, that's exactly where God wants him. Because God is going to continue to bring Jacob to himself and to show him his grace and his mercy. So with that in mind, Genesis chapter 32 Uh, We're going to read the first 21 verses, again, a fairly long reading this morning because we're in the narrative section of Scripture, uh, and these stories are somewhat lengthy, but they're rich and filled uh, with great teaching for us. So hear the Word of God, the first 21 verses of Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahamain. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau's brothers in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and have stayed until now, which was about 20 years since he's seen his brother. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight." And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds and the steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Now I'm going to stop here for just a second because I know that there are some of you right now that are trying to figure out what that total number is and you're going to get distracted. It's 540, okay? Just so, you, just so you can let that go and we can move on. Then he handed these over to his servant. Every uh, drove uh, by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the presence that go ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray together. 
Father, we sang earlier, we bow down, uh, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Father, now we come to, to sit at the feet of Jesus and to be taught by him, by his holy word, by his Holy Spirit. Father, our heart's longing is, is to know him better. This one who left heaven and came and lived a perfect life when we were filled with nothing but imperfection and then gladly gave his life as a ransom, as a payment, as a sacrifice for us. Father, that, that boggles our minds. It's truly astounding when we sit and we contemplate and we think about it that one so perfect and beautiful and majestic and glorious would give his life in place of our brokenness. And so, Father, I believe that we've come to the right place this morning, not to Green Tree Community Church. We've come to your word, which is filled with his beauty and his perfection and also his instruction for his people. Father, I pray that you would forgive my sin and not let me stand in between you and your people and what you want to teach us this morning, that you would forgive me and, Lord Jesus, that you would instruct us, that we would know you and love you because you have first known and love us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that that this rock in the hard place where Jacob finds himself uh, is actually a good place. Uh, because it's the one place where we're going to see, uh, at least be introduced to this morning. Uh, and then when we pick up again after Easter, we're going to, we're going to see this encounter with God where Jacob kind of finally has run out of real estate. He has nowhere to run and he has nowhere to hide. Uh, perhaps there have been moments in your life, uh, not like the, the, the kind of the silly one I mentioned at the outset, but perhaps you found places in your life where you really are in a tight spot, where you really have to look heavenward for some answers. And that's where Jacob finds himself. But, but being in, in between a rock and a hard place is not a bad thing. And it does not mean that God has abandoned Jacob, nor does it mean when we find ourselves in that place that God has abandoned us. In fact, God is right smack dab in the middle of this situation. Look how the passage begins in verse 1. When Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. You remember when Jacob left Canaan and was on his way uh, east? He saw the stairway of God. He saw the angels ascending and descending. We have a similar kind of picture here. The angels of God are a picture of God's steadfast promise. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. All those promises were still intact even as Jacob was wrestling with which way to turn and where to go. God was refining Jacob's faith. I think really a better way to say it might be that God was bringing Jacob to a place of faith. I firmly believe up to this point in scripture, Jacob does not trust in God with a believing faith. And as we read through this text, I think we'll see that his prayer and his actions play that out. But God is patiently working. He isn't giving up. He's molding, he's shaping, he's directing the footsteps of Jacob's life. And again, for us, friends, that is so important because there are moments when you get in the furnace where you go, I, I think God's left. I think he must be someplace else. Maybe he's, he's dealing with the Middle East right now. Maybe he's dealing with the unemployment crisis, but he certainly isn't looking at my life because it's a mess. And I think scripture teaches us to refocus and to believe and to understand that it's in the, it's in the furnace. It's in the tough places where God meets us 
God's angels were there. God's steadfast promise was surrounding him. He called the place God's camp, which literally means a host of angels or an army of angels, a legion of angels, so to speak. So, so Jacob just doesn't see a couple of angels. He sees a whole army of heaven. What I want to spend our time dealing with this morning is what's his response to this? When he sees this vision, when he comes to the conclusion, this is God's camp, how does the, he then react given his human set of circumstances? I think he has a threefold uh, response, and we're going to look at each one of them. The threefold response is doubt, prayer, and desperation, and we're going to look at it in that order. First, let's talk about the doubt. Look at verses 3 through 5, and, and I'm just going to put some bullet points on the screen this morning, so you'll need to follow along in your Bibles or in the, in the little... Uh, passages printed out in our scripture. But in verses 3 through 5, it says that Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau's brother. He knew that he was going back and he was going to have to deal with Esau. So he sends messengers on ahead and he instructs them, say to my Lord Esau, thus your servant Jacob, okay, I am, I'm returning as a servant. I've sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I, I have sent to tell my Lord and in order that I might find favor in his sight. You see what Jacob's doing? He's testing the water. He's trying to get a read on Esau's disposition. Notice how he sets it up. Uh, Esau, my Lord, I am your servant, Jacob. He's not uh, rubbing Esau's nose in the fact that he got the blessing. In fact, he's, he's trying to help Esau forget all of that. He's testing the water. Has 20 years of absence softened my brother? Notice that Jacob is still looking for the advantage. He's still looking for the right hand to play at the right moment. He's still trying to manipulate the circumstances in his favor. But look at the response that happens. In verse 6, in the first part of verse 7, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Part of his doubt not only is testing the water, but, but part of his doubt is that he, he sees what's uh, apparently happening. He draws a conclusion, and, and his conclusion is this cannot be good. <laughs> this is not a good situation. The, the number 400 men was kind of a standard size of a militia in those days. It was typically a fighting force. And so Jacob draws the conclusion that Esau's coming to mete out the vengeance for which he has longed all of these years. Esau is now going to, to do what he had promised. And, and Jacob is faced with quite the, the bleak outlook in his own mind. Even after he's seen this legion of angels, thousands of angels in God's camp, a picture of God's faithfulness, he hears about 400 guys and he falls apart. Jacob is in the middle of a wrestling match with his own doubt. But it doesn't stop there. Second part of verse 7 and verse 8, he divided the people who were with them and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes against the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. His conclusion is, I'm in big trouble. This is a crisis and, and, and I can't stand against this army. He's forgotten the angels of God and he's now in a panic. Now, why does Jacob react this way? I find myself asking this question as I look at this text based on that first verse and all of the verses leading up to this which have shown time and time and time again that God is for Jacob, that God is protecting Jacob, that God is, is nurturing Jacob. Why this response? Why after he sees the, the stairway 
into heaven, so to speak, and, and 20 years earlier, and, and gets the promise, a verbal promise from God, and then survives his encounter with Laban, and then God shows him this vision of angels. Again, why is he in such a panic? I believe he's in a panic, not just because he's doubting, but he's doubting because he has a guilty conscience. He's doubting because Jacob's a cheater, and he's a liar, and he's a thief, but he's not a fool, Those are two very different things. Jacob is one of the shrewdest people you will ever meet in all of Scripture. But Jacob, because he's intelligent, because he's bright, he knows that he's done his brother wrong. He knows that he's been unfair with Esau. He knows that that Esau's uh, anger is rightly displayed against him. Jacob knew that, that God had promised that he would get the birthright, but then Jacob and his mom conspired to cheat and to steal and to rob it instead of simply trusting in God. He's hoping that Esau's anger is diminished, but he has no real reason for that hope. He says, if I were in Esau's shoes, I certainly wouldn't be gracious. I certainly wouldn't be forgiving. If somebody had duped me, I would certainly find a way to exact vengeance upon him. I find it astounding that Richard Nixon taped all of the, all of the Oval Office conversations that he taped. I find it absolutely mind-boggling that, that Nixon would open himself up to what eventually happened to him. If he had simply not tape-recorded anything, he simply kept quiet about it, he probably would have he had a chance at least of getting away with it. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm amazed that Nixon taped all that, except when I stopped and read about Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon, whether you love him or hate him, was a crooked politician. And he expected everybody else to be crooked like him. And he expected all the people around him to be people that were not worthy of trust. Why? Because he knew in his heart of hearts, he was not worthy of trust. He knew he was about his own survival and nothing else. And Jacob is that same sort of person. He knows what he's done is wrong. He has no reason to hope. And his doubt is well-founded based on Jacob looking at Jacob and seeing the guilt in his life, and perhaps where Jacob ends up on this night uh, before he's going to meet his brothers, that he simply says, well, maybe everything's come full circle, and maybe I'm going to get what I deserve. But what happens when you find yourself in that spot? A lot of people end up praying. They might not know there's a God or believe there's a God, but but in some way that their their attention is drawn to that, and, and they out of desperation they cry for hope, and that's what Jacob does. His second response, while he's doubting and wrestling with his guilt, is a response of prayer. Look at verse nine. Jacob says to God. By the way, this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob in the Bible. Uh, earlier, when he's leaving and he has that encounter with God, he makes a promise, but it's not a prayer. It's a negotiation. This is the first time that we know in Jacob's life that he's actually prayed. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I'm going to paraphrase that that prayer. Here's what Jacob just prayed. God, you got me into this mess. (laughs) God, you're the reason I'm here. God, remember you said, go back home. And now I've, I've done what you've told me to do. And now look where I am. I think in a sense, Jacob is saying, you know what, God, this is on you. If something happens to me, this is your fault, not mine. And again, that's so much like us. We can't possibly see our own guilt. We can't possibly see our own culpability. We're victims. And Jacob is trying as best he can to offer a prayer. But even in his prayer, he accuses someone else for the problems he's created. But then look at how he, he backs up pretty quick in verse 10. And he says, I am not worthy 
of the least of all of the deeds and steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only a staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. I'm going to paraphrase that, that part of the prayer for you. That part of the prayer is Jacob saying, perhaps I misspoke. <laughs> perhaps I said something that, that, that maybe I jumped to a conclusion uh, to which I shouldn't have jumped, Lord. Perhaps I, I, I laid the blame at your feet a little bit too quickly. Uh, it, it's almost like he's saying, yeah, that might not have been, if that's my first prayer, that might not have been the best way to start it. And he remembers very honestly the fact that 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 he does have a little glimmer of hope because somewhere in the back recesses of his mind, he's thinking, you know, the fact that I am okay today actually gets credited back to God. This is not the greatest prayer in the history of the world, but at least Jacob is is perhaps beginning to show some signs of moving in the right direction. So the, the, the third part of the prayer is found in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mother with the children. Usually after you say, God, I'm not worthy of all these blessings you've given me, the next thing you, uh, that comes out of your mouth is, thank you. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for, for caring for me. Thank you for, for uh, looking out for me. But that's not what Jacob says. Jacob, I'm going to paraphrase this part of the prayer. It's simply this, help. <laughs> help. I have nowhere else to go. And I am afraid. God, if you don't deliver me, then there will be no free. There will be no freedom. There will be no life. There will be nothing that goes on from here. Again, not worded the best way, but Jacob maybe is beginning to show some signs of faith. Maybe, just maybe. But then in verse 12, the last part of the prayer, Jacob says this, but you said, so he's nice coming back to God, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered by multitude. It's as if Jacob is saying, we're in this together, right? Now, you remembered that, that you made this promise, that, that someday all of my, my offspring were going to be so many that, that you couldn't even count them. Uh, remember that, God? As if God needed that reminder. You think God was sitting in heaven going, oh, God, Jacob, I forgot about that. That's exactly right. I'll take care of Esau. Do you think God needed Jacob to remind him about his promise? Uh, I set my phone by my bedstand. Because in my line of work, sometimes you get calls in the middle of the night where there's a crisis and you need to, to go and respond. And I have a pretty simple phone, but the ringer on the phone, when it rings for a phone call, rings one way. And if it's a text message, it rings in a different way. At a quarter to one in the morning this morning, my text message went off. Now, if I take these glasses off, I cannot see this. I can't see any of this. You might say, well, could you preach with your glasses off because it'll go a little quicker. But um, <laughs> short answer to that question is no. Uh, so, so I'm fumbling around to find my glasses and I'm thinking, okay, if somebody's in a crisis, why are they text messaging me? They know I have fat stubby thumbs and it takes forever to text back. And so I, I find, I flip it open and it's a text from the phone uh, of a friend of my daughter that she's visiting on vacation right now. So, um, and it's, and it's from my daughter, Katie, because while she's been on vacation, she left her purse in the car of her friend. And while they're out at the beach, somebody broke into the car and stole the purse. So she lost the phone. She lost the iPod. She lost the, you know, her, her ID. We had to FedEx her passport out to her. So she had a picture ID. So she's texting me on the phone of her friend at quarter to one in the morning. And she's saying, who's going to pick me up at the airport? Yeah, quarter to one in the morning. So I text back after I find my glasses and try to wake myself up. Uh, me, mom, Jordan, or Nate. That pretty much is the whole gamut. <laughs> you know, I guess I could have just said one of us and it would have been the same. 
Then she texts back and she says, um, okay, well, since I don't have my phone, I won't be able to contact you. I just want you to know that I'll be standing on the curb wearing a tan sweater. I texted back and I said, I know you've been gone a week, but I'm vaguely, vaguely familiar with what you look like. <laughs> I'm going to drive around the airport 20 times because I didn't know she was in a tan sweater. <laughs> I mean, I, come on. So then I just texted back, good night. <laughs> and she texted back, ha ha, smart aleck or something like that. I'm, Katie, I know what like that. I'm, Katie, I know what time it is here. Do you know what time it is here? But I'm thinking, I know what my daughter looks like. <laughs> she doesn't need to remind me. And, and I, don't think, I don't think God has those kind of petty thoughts like that. But God didn't need to be reminded of his promise by Jacob. God knew exactly what he had said. And he was going to keep his word. And, and in the midst of this prayer where, where it feels like there might be a little bit of a hope, I think actually this is a prayer of extreme anxiety. It's focused on fear. It's not focused on faith. It's not focused on trust. There's no worship of God here. There's no thankfulness for what God has done. I believe this prayer is just a a desire of Jacob to save his skin. So if he's making strides in the right direction, they're awfully small. And yet when I look at my own prayer life, I got to admit to you, I've prayed this kind of prayer before. I've said to God, God, how did we get into this? (laughs) This isn't the direction I would have chosen. In an accusatory manner, as if I could stand before the God of the universe and say, you've made a mistake. I see my heart in the heart of Jacob when when my prayer simply is help, Lord. (laughs) I don't know where else to turn, when I should have turned to him in the first place. When I felt the need to remind God that he's a God of love, as if he had forgotten that somehow. I see Jacob's doubt. I see Jacob's prayer and I see my own heart at times. But there's a third response, and it's a response of desperation. Look at verses 13 through 15. So he stayed there that night, and from where he uh, had with him, he took a present to his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, the, the, the ewes, the rams, the camels. The, you know, he, he gets this, this gift together, uh, and he, he gets the, the, basically puts them into five groups. We've got goats, and we've got sheep, we've got camels, we've got cattle, and we've got donkeys. I said earlier, uh, about 540 animals, not counting the little calves of the, of the camels, however many there would have been. And he divides them into five groups. So we've got these five droves uh, of animals. And then look at verses uh, 16 through 19. Now that here's the plan on what we're going to do with these animals. He handed them over to his servants, every drove by itself. So here are the, here are the sheep. Uh, here, you know, here, here's the cattle, here's the camels. We've got them all organized and divided up, okay? And he instructed them. He says this, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. When he saw my brother meet you and ask you to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are presents sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed in droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau. You find him and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with this present. I may appease him with this present. Uh, Jacob sets up these five encounters, uh, these five gifts. So, so Esau is going to be coming along and, and the first thing that, that shows up are the, are the goats. And he's going to ask the question, where, where they come from? Well, these are from Jacob. These are your, your, your brothers, and they're a gift to you. And about the time that conversation is finishing up, 
and Esau's kind of getting them out of the way and moving on. The next group shows up. Here come the sheep. Okay, where are you going? Well, these are for you. They're for your brother, Jacob. And then they're gone. And then they're virtually just barely out of the way. And the camels show up. And you get the picture. One gift right after the other. It's like Christmas morning on steroids uh, for, for Esau. This one's yours. And these are yours. And these are yours. Hoping to appease him. But I believe this is a misplaced hope. Jacob's trusting either in Esau's bad memory... <laughs> or he's trusting in his own great strategy. He's thinking perhaps I'll buy him off. I think that's what I may appease him means. Now, notice Jacob has gone from from doubt, and his doubt and his guilty conscience has taken him to prayer. God, desperation, help me somehow. And then he he doesn't settle into that prayer and say, okay, Lord, now I'm going to trust you for whatever that happens. I'm simply going to go forward in faith, and I'm going to meet Esau. And one of my staff members asked me this week, she said, what do you think faith would have looked like uh, had Jacob been practicing faith. I, I, and I said, I think it would have looked like Jacob getting a good night's sleep and saying, okay, I'm going to go meet my brother. And whatever happens is in the Lord's hands because God has told me to return. But Jacob can't leave it alone. He's got to put his fingers on it. He's got to mold it. He's got to shape it. He's got to manipulate it because that's his personality. I'll buy him off. James Montgomery Boyce says this, the one thing that Jacob never did Jacob never asked God what he should do. That's really an an astute observation. Jacob is very, very busy organizing this thing, but the one thing he isn't doing is saying, Lord, what would you have me do? We prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning because I wanted all of us to say out loud again together, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I wanted us to remember through prayer, that one of the key aspects of our relationship with God is submitting to his will and trusting in his grace and in his compassion. And, and Jacob, he, he's dear guy, he almost can't help himself. In one sense, it's, it's the same old Jacob. It's the last desperate measure. And that's the bad news about this text. But the good news about this text is that God isn't done with Jacob. It doesn't end with verse 21. So he stayed the night in that camp. We're going to take a couple weeks off because of Palm Sunday and because of Easter. But when we come back, we're going to witness Jacob's conversion experience. We're going to see Jacob come face to face with the living God and to see real redemption begin to take place in his heart. Because although God doesn't need to be reminded about his plan, he is very active in his plan with Jacob. Do you find yourself doubting? Do you find yourself praying a prayer that almost doesn't make any sense to pray? Do you find yourself at times in desperation where you've, you've prayed and you've tried to let go, but now you're going to manipulate it again? Or you can come and stand next to me. <laughs> so the question I want to ask this morning is, what about us? How do we apply this text to our lives? I, I think a little desperation is a good thing. <laughs> I don't think that's all that bad because there are circumstances in our lives that are outside of our control. There are, there are bad things that happen in the world. And I don't think as a Christian, you check your emotions at the door or you check your logic at the door. Logic would tell you we live in a broken world. Logic would tell you there's a lot of hopelessness and there's a lot of evil in this world and it would be very easy for us to simply enter into doubt and a weak prayer life and desperation. But desperation that's man-centered you know, Jacob the conniver, not interested in worshiping God or, or honoring God, 
Um, but, but his desperation shows that he's focused on how he's going to get himself out of his trouble. It's a very man-centered plan. It's like if you ever saw the movie, What About Bob? with Bill Murray, one of my, one of my all-time favorite Bill, Bill Murray movies. But he plays this, this very seriously deranged guy uh, who follows his psychologist on vacation and can't leave him alone. And there's one place where the, the psychologist says, you know, can you, just, can you just take a break? Could you just leave me alone for a little while? And, and, he, and he pleads with him, but, but I need, I need, I need, gimme, 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 I need, I need. And, it, and it's a whole lot funnier than I'm making it sound, but that's what my prayer life sounds like sometimes, I think. God, gimme, I need, help me. Don't, don't do your plan, do my plan. It'll be so much better. That's a desperation that's man-centered, and I don't think that kind of desperation is ever a good thing. Might be motivated by guilt. Might be thinking God won't respond. Might, might be thinking, you know, there's something wrong with me and God won't love me. But I think there is a good desperation. Jacob hadn't gotten there yet, but he's going to get there. It's a God-centered desperation because it results in faith. It results in me saying, I, I take my hands off. God, I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to pray and then, and then go do my plan. I'm going to bow before you. Father, my strongest desire is to be in your will. Your will be done. Your kingdom come into my life just like it is in heaven. That's a desperation that's based on faith. It's also a desperation that says, thanks to the cross of Jesus, I can pray this kind of prayer. It's not because I'm a good person, but it's because God has offered me forgiveness in Christ. And I exercise daily repentance. And I exercise a daily humble reliance on God's grace. Jacob hasn't, got, got, hasn't quite gotten there yet, but he is between a rock and a hard place. And I believe that's where we find ourselves sometimes. But I also believe it's where God does some of his best work because <laughs> it's there where we learn to trust him. Will you pray with me? Father, keep us from looking at this passage and, and uh, being critical of Jacob. Father, keep us from looking at this passage void of our own life experiences. Father, I pray that each one of us would be under the, the teaching of your Holy Spirit this morning and perhaps the conviction and the correction of your Holy Spirit. Father, I know there's so many times when I just, I take my eyes off Jesus. I forget what the cross has accomplished and I doubt. And most of that time it's because I have a guilty conscience, because I haven't confessed my sin, because I haven't trusted in you. And I begin to fall back into thinking I've got to be worthy before God will love me. I've got to dust myself off, clean myself up before I'm presentable. And I forget that the cross is the only thing that makes me presentable in your sight. Father, Jacob was racked with doubt because he was racked with guilt. And you were going to deal with that. And I pray that you would deal with that in, in my heart and in our hearts this morning so that our prayers, Father, could be prayers of asking that your will would be done. 